I'm very grateful for Wave Nunley taking over last week as I had a men's discipleship outing in the Branson area uh, over the weekend. Wave is a, obviously a preeminent uh, Hebrew scholar and is in our own backyard, and uh, we are privileged to have him expound the scriptures for us. Uh, we return to our study in the book of Acts, and we covered the first three verses of chapter 2, the last time we were in this book, what we found was that there was about 120 disciples waiting and praying as they were promised the Holy Spirit to come into their life after Jesus had been ascended and was no longer now physically with them. Uh, Jesus actually gave a promise in John 14, 16, where he said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, so that there would be no doubt upon his arrival, God demonstrates his presence in Acts 2 with the sound of a, of a mighty wind, and then what appeared as tongues of fire above each of the disciples, and the tongues being manifested as they spoke these foreign languages after that. Now, there's no record of, of wind, fire, tongues being manifested in combination like that at any other time other than at that point. And apparently a large audience could hear the sound of the wind that had rushed through, or at least the sound of wind that had rushed through, and, and the disciples apparently had come out from the upper room, and it tells us that thousands had gathered around. And, and we know that Jerusalem was filled with Tens of thousands, uh, some uh, estimate over 100,000, in Jerusalem from surrounding countries, surrounding areas, who were Jews who were there to celebrate the festival of Passover, and then a couple months later, the uh, festival of Pentecost. And so they would stay that whole time, essentially be like short-term residents of, of Jerusalem instead of going back and then having to come back again. Now, the significance of that is that here you had thousands of people who came to Christ, these Jews, who now went back to their homeland. So God's timing was absolutely perfect and created this great missionary endeavor as they went and then shared the gospel once they went home. And so God, in, in doing this and in bringing people together, was, was breaking apart the, the racial and, and national divides that had taken place, really, in all of humanity, for the history of humanity. And uh, so it's just a glorious, glorious event. Let's take a look at this passage. Let's all stand as we read it. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Uh, Parthians and, and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the 
parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all who were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's perhaps not a more incendiary topic to discuss among Christians, especially in this town, than the filling of the Holy Spirit and tongues. Now, whether you grew up open to the work of the Holy Spirit or not so open to it, the fact is is that we all have our own backgrounds and experiences, if you grew up in church at all, that influence us, that bear upon our understanding of these things. I mean, obviously, we live in a city that has, you know, AG roots, headquarters, conservative or Baptist Bible College, conservative Baptist roots, and a lot of Southern Baptist churches that are very different in this way, well, on this topic, than AG folks. Now, our job, listen, is not to be beholden to some denominational slant. I suppose that's one advantage of being non-denominational. And our job is not to be beholden even to our, our experiences, but to allow the Word of God to breathe and to speak for itself without some other agenda dictating to us. Are you with me? All right? That's what we're here to do. So just so you know... I'm not here to appeal to any group. I'm not here to appeal to any individual. I'm trying to cut it straight. And to the degree that I do that, take it, use it, apply it. To the degree I don't do that, I pray that God gives you wisdom and courage and you can throw it out. All right? My goal is to get through this passage and not detract from the meaning of the text. That's my job as your pastor. Now, our passage specifically says that they were all filled with the Spirit. Now, what is curious about this, when it says they were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2, it says that in Acts 1-5, the disciples were going to be baptized with the Spirit in a matter of days. In fact, in Acts 11-16-17, Peter looks back, past tense, and talks about the baptism that had already taken place. And every Bible commentator I read says that that took place at Acts 2 in the inauguration of the church and the baptism of the Spirit during Pentecost. Uh, Now, you might remember that in in Luke 3, verses 15 through 16, we covered this before, that um, there was a promise that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit and it would be accompanied by fire. And then, of course, we know from Acts 2 that fire accompanied... um, this manifestation. But, but the passage in Acts 2 doesn't say that they were baptized. It says they were filled. Now, I believe that words mean something and that the, the Holy Spirit has revealed truth to us and, the, and that those words have meaning. And we can't trifle about the words as if, you know, we can just meander about and do whatever we want and just throw anything in there, all right? I mean, baptism and filling, I think, are two distinct things. 
And to not make that distinction, I believe, causes great confusion for believers. And that confusion can easily cause undue expectation and even disorder in our walk with Christ. So here's how I'm approaching this. Whatever baptism and filling means, because of the promises that were given, because of how the apostles looked back at this episode, all right, I have to surmise, and because of what was said in Acts 2, that baptism and filling took place at the same event. They were filled with the Spirit and had been baptized in the Spirit. Now, the promise of the Spirit is seen in John 14, 16 through 17, where not only is the Spirit promised to be with us forever, but he is promised to be in us. That was not the case in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, but now in this New Covenant, the Spirit of God is in us. Now, there is a rich theological um, meaning to the Holy Spirit being in us and all that goes on during salvation. And I'll just point out a few. We see, for instance, in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, that we are given a new heart. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that we become a new person. Uh, In Jeremiah 31, it talks about we are grafted into a new covenant. And then we read later in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are placed, actually baptized, into the body of Christ, his church. Now listen, we have to allow the scriptures that, that speak clearly about the meaning of something, and in this case the baptism of the Spirit, to take precedent over any conjecture or less clear passages, right? I mean, that only makes sense. So I would suggest to you that we have clarity for us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it is defined for us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there is a very real spiritual unity that takes place. We enjoy this now in the city between the white and black churches with the unity in Springfield. And and when we're seeing God meld our hearts together, that's a work of the Spirit where it, it cuts across racial and national boundaries because we are baptized into one entity, his church, the body of Christ. Now, the reality of that unity we see supernaturally demonstrated in Acts 2. We'll talk more about that here in a second. Now, when does a believer uh, participate in the new covenant, begin to participate? When does a person become a new person, have a new heart, and being placed in the body of Christ? When does all that occur? Well, it occurs at the moment that we trust God. Christ for our salvation. And Ephesians 1 goes into a whole list of spiritual realities in a way that clearly uh, demonstrates that we already possess these realities. And we can just add this to the list. Let's look at it together in 
of Ephesians 1. If we can go to that slide, here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with, uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I mean, I just want to come out of my shoes to, as we read all this, all these things we have in Christ, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, whom, uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, check this out, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, what I want you to see is that these are things that we possess already because of our union in Christ. They are present realities that took place at the moment of salvation. These are not items that we have earned These are not items that we need to seek to experience again. They are permanent possessions of the believer. And notice it is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Add to this understanding that nowhere in Scripture are we given the injunction or command to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit because we are already baptized at the time that we come to Christ at salvation. In contrast to the baptism, we are commanded repeatedly to be filled with the Spirit. In fact, Ephesians 5.18 says, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not be drunk with wine. That last phrase wasn't added by old school Baptists. It's actually there in the text, and what it, it actually gives meaning to it. What it means is some people will be controlled by strong drink. You're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. So we could say it this way. The baptism of the Spirit means that I belong to his body, The fullness of the Spirit means my body belongs to him. The baptism is final. The fullness is repeated throughout our lives as we trust God for his power in our life. And by the way, we are told what the results or fruit are going to be when we are filled with the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. I'm not going to read all of it, but I think most of you are familiar with it. But they are characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. Characteristics, things that God is working in us as we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting is if you follow the word filled throughout the book of Acts, it's actually mentioned 14 times 
in the book of Acts. Six times it refers to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now what is interesting is to see what takes place when one is filled. We might find a pattern or something here if we take a look at this, because this is the first time we hear about the people being filled with the Holy Spirit after the Holy Spirit is indwelling Christians. For instance, in Acts 2.4, we see the crowd gathering, and it's a Jewish audience who are in need of Christ, and the disciples speak in tongues to this audience, and then Peter begins to preach a sermon. In Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he speaks to public officials and rulers. And it implies that he's given great boldness when he does that. In Acts 4.31, a prayer meeting ensues, and the disciples were filled with the Spirit, and it says they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. In Acts 9.17, Ananias lays his hands upon Saul to heal him. And then shortly thereafter, of course, Saul became Paul. Saul then preaches with boldness in the synagogue. In Acts 13.9, Paul is filled uh, with the Spirit, and he confronts an individual who had come against the Word of God. And in Acts 13.52, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in response to being persecuted, it says that they experienced great joy as a result of the filling. The idea is that the, the Holy Spirit is giving them endurance, the ability to endure this persecution. So the overwhelming evidence from Acts demonstrates that when we are filled with the Spirit... It empowers us for service, being, be it uh, using the word of God, endurance during a trial, or any other way that God chooses to equip us in that moment. Now, other than the fruit of the Spirit that is talked about in Galatians, we don't really find any specific pattern or one thing that always happens as a result of being filled other than God providing whatever is needed in the moment. Now let me add, being filled is not automatic. It takes humility, a conscious decision to not depend on self and to depend upon the indwelling Christ. And by the way, I think that those are, those are synonymous. Being filled with the Spirit, living in light of Christ in us, being responsible to live in the power of God. So we humble ourselves and admit our need. In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox, you might recognize that name, he's done a lot in the intelligent design movement, notes that God calls us to do something difficult when he does this. He gives us the strength when we need it and not necessarily before that. And he illustrates this biblical principle with a story of an encounter with a Russian follower of of Christ who spent years in a Siberian labor camp, and his crime was that he taught the Bible to children. Lennox writes this. He described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. 
I listened, thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I could have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And then Lennox adds this. We can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. My friends, we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. Our sufficiency, the Bible says, is from God. And we too need the daily ministry of the quickener, the comforter, and the teacher. The Holy Spirit's work and the continuance of Christ's work in our lives means that we get the benefit of his continual presence, even after Christ left the earth. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. No longer is Christ outside us, only to be seen by the eye, heard by the ear, and touched by the hand. But now we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and he dwells not only with us, but in us. Acts 2.4 says that after being filled, the disciples spoke in tongues. Well, what actually took place? Thankfully, we are given a very detailed description of what happened in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 says, now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This tells us of the universality of the many Jews from different areas around the world, different countries, and they would give further testimony to the miracle of the unity that God would have and, 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 and that God would communicate to them in their own language other than Aramaic and Greek. And verse 11 tells us that there were Jewish converts to Judaism, excuse me, Gentile converts to Judaism that were there and people who grew up Jews. And both those groups apparently came to Christ. And then we read from verses 6 through 11 a list of 15 geographical locations in which known Jewish populations existed and apparently sent representative groups to this feast of Passover and then later Pentecost. And everyone there who spoke a language other than Greek or Aramaic heard the message of the disciples in their own language. I mean, it'd be like a contingency of of people from Germany or Korea visiting our church. I speak neither. But that God were to give me the gift of tongues, and I spoke perfect German and Korean so that they could understand without my Midwestern accent. Now, apparently, the sound of the wind brought the crowd together. Then these people from Galilee, not linguists, not knowing the foreign languages, 
stood up and proclaimed the mighty works of God in all those different languages. Now, we don't know exactly what they said, but I think we can be sure that the audience couldn't quite get over the fact that these simple Galileans were speaking these foreign languages. The Greek word translated language in Acts 2, 6, and in Acts 2, 8 is dialectos. It refers always to a known language or dialect of some other country or district. So the tongues demonstrated in Acts 2 is a known foreign language to the world, but unknown to the speaker, who now supernaturally is speaking the language. Now, the content of the tongues was the wonders of God. In other words, it was the praise of God's people that was used as a sign of the filling of the Spirit. Don't you find that interesting? I do. In fact, if you were to read about the filling of the Spirit in Acts 15, or in Acts 5, 18, and 19, what you find after the injunction to be filled with the Spirit, then he talks about how we're to address one another in verse 19 in, 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 in Ephesians 5, address one another in what? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Clearly, praise being attached to the filling of the Spirit. Now, the tongues also demonstrated the diversity of the body and the unity in the Spirit with having all these nationalities there. We could maybe say this, that the praise of God is a universal language. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? It was a time when there was one language on the earth and, and humankind had built this giant tower as a testimony to the greatness of humanity. In fact, Genesis 11.4 says that they wanted to build a tower to make a name for themselves. But God confused humanity with foreign languages and dispersed the population throughout the earth. And humankind has been divided ever since. So the Tower of Babel was a, was a scheme designed to praise man and make a name for man, but Pentecost brought praise to God. The building of Babel was an act of rebellion against God, but Pentecost was a ministry of humble submission to God. And what a contrast between those two scenarios. Acts 2 is really more of an answer to the curse at Babel in that God unites humans by the Spirit of God under the power of the gospel. Jan and I were chuckling yesterday as we saw this uh, short interview with a football coach who was saying how football has united his community over a tragedy of some flooding that had taken place there. Now, sure, you can get everybody in the same stadium to watch a football game, and they can cheer together, but football can't change the human heart. And rarely does it change perceptions of people either. Besides, once the game ends, people go back to real life. They have to face reality. Where's football then? Only in Christ, by the power of the Spirit of God, can there be lasting unity. And it's genuine. It flows from the inside. 
Verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Unable to explain this miracle away, the Jewish unbelievers were puzzled, and they resorted to becoming scoffers. And they asserted, These people have just had too much to drink. You know, it's really not unusual for people to try to justify a supernatural occurrence with some natural explanation. People do it all the time. Yeah, they do it with the creation of the world. I've got to have some natural explanation. And many people close their minds. It's funny how people always tout themselves as being open-minded, but they've closed their minds to supernatural activity. And unfortunately, I think Christians can get washed up in this as well. Instead of taking what takes place at face value, maybe even being amazed about it. I mean, listen, you look throughout Scripture how the Holy Spirit has manifested himself. Uh, Fire, wind, cloud, a dove. I think what some Christians do, they're so uncomfortable with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, they're like trying to fit a big old dove in a little tin, you know, tuna can. I got to manage it. I got to control it to fit my prior understanding or my experience. In fact, they might even say, that expression is not for today. Listen, one has to really force such an idea on top of the scriptures to come up with such a notion. I got a call as I see it. Seventy times the word spirit is mentioned in Acts. Now, there's something I think we can learn from this. Let's take a look at how the Spirit manifests himself in the lives of the church. Ten times the Spirit is mentioned as coming upon other Gentiles to include them in the family of God. They're literally being baptized into the family of God. Ten times the Spirit is mentioned as speaking to individuals about where to go. Remember, you had situations where Paul was told not to go to a place or, or the Spirit told him to go to a particular place. So being intimately involved in communicating with them. Five times the word Spirit is mentioned as a fulfillment of the promise of God. So it looks back and talks about what's taking place as a fulfillment of the promise of the Spirit. Five times the Spirit is mentioned as empowering others to preach or prophesy. Three times the Spirit is mentioned as a prerequisite for leadership. For instance, you might remember in choosing deacons, they were to be full of the Spirit. Three times the Spirit is spoken of to empower believers for endurance during affliction. And three times in Acts, speaking in tongues is associated with the Spirit. Twice the Spirit is said to have brought joy and comfort once it talks about resting, uh, excuse me, resisting the Spirit and where a person was rejecting the, uh, the Word of God. Jesus is mentioned in Acts 10.38 as being anointed by the Spirit to heal. One other time the Spirit is mentioned as giving faith and another for producing character. What, what I want to show you here is that the Holy Spirit moves in a variety of ways in our lives. We dare not box him in to, you know, dictate how, it's going to, how he's going to manifest himself through a certain methodology or in a certain place like in a church. 
He empowers us for life and ministry in all situations. And he does so with a purpose and not for show. The Spirit empowers us to do life. And the fruit of his activity is our ability to function in every situation with faithfulness, in truth, and in endurance. To think that the Holy Spirit only shows up in a public meeting by one particular sign when we are filled, not only, I think, grossly misrepresents the Scripture, but it's myopic myopic and actually limiting to the Spirit of God. I'm not saying he can't do it with any sign. I'm just saying, why limit it to one sign? He can express himself in any way that he wants. And we ought not to feel compelled to have to fit somebody's agenda by abiding such notions. It's got to be in just one particular sign. I think what the book of Acts does is that it teaches us to be open for God to intervene, to strengthen, to influence our lives at all times. We might say it this way. The Holy Spirit is like our corner man. Every good boxer has a good corner man. Probably the most famous was Angelo Dundee. He was Muhammad Ali's corner man for over 20 years. But he also trained 15 other world champions. Angelo Dundee described his job as a corner man this way. When you're working with a fighter, you're a surgeon, an engineer, and a psychologist. You know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have something far better than a surgeon engineer, or psychologist in our corner. We have the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us and empowers us in every situation. Let's pray.